Welcome to Commerce Talks, episode number 53. Today, my guest is Thomas Prommer. He is uh, today Global SVP Engineering at Adidas, but he holds similar position at Bain Capital and Sweetgreen. Um, in his LinkedIn profile, he stated, as an early web entrepreneur and hands-on engineer at heart, he has single-handled built, grown, and commercialized digital properties that have reached over 10 million visitors a month. The interesting thing with Thomas is he has been in the business now for really 20 plus years. So he holds kind of CIO positions when the term CIO was not yet coined. And um, his view is interesting because he saw several several waves of digital transformation. The early transformation when it only was about creating new digital channels just building the first e-commerce channel and now the second or third wave is to become real digital companies and his view on how to overcome all the challenges that he already faced in the first wave of digital transformation are really interesting so please listen in to thomas Prommer. Um, Tom, welcome to the Commerce Talks podcast. Today we are talking about uh, global software development in uh, corporates or corporate projects. You've been working for many big brands uh, in in your career um, from advisory perspective, also from a practitioner perspective, working for these brands um, directly. Uh, you have been confronted with like all the challenges we have been discussing in this podcast uh, many times from microservices to monoliths to outsourcing, insourcing, hiring developers. Uh, and uh, it, it's great that you're going to share some of your um, insights. But uh, to have a nice start here, maybe can you introduce yourself a little bit so the people, our listeners here, uh, get a better picture about you? Absolutely. Um, thanks so much, Alex, for having me. And um, yeah, word for introduction, um, technologist by heart, have a computer science background. Um, I went through my computer science training both in Germany and in the US and, you know, been a very early developer from, from the age of 10, 12 years old um, as a Manelion. That's when, you know, in the internet started, um, very traditional model with getting my first C64 and building things in QBasic. And when the internet came out, putting that on the website, building, you know, little games like fantasy soccer sites, et cetera. And since then, been always very close to the digital track. Yeah. And uh, from a career background, um, I worked, you know, the first decade as a technology leader in, in several digital agencies. So I've worked with a lot of large enterprise clients as part of that through their you know, first, second, third wave of digital transformation. And now over the last three years, I've been working more on the client side as an advisor, as a consultant, to your point, also hands-on as a practitioner and, and, and a technology lead. So yeah, excited to be here and, and talk shop today with you. What was the first big e-commerce project you helped uh, implementing? Can you remember that? I do, yeah. It was actually um, uh, during my time at, at Huge and it was uh, Barneys.com. Um, so, so they came to us and, um, you know, it was really their, I would say the first wave of digital transformation. Um, mm. They wanted to go direct to consumer and um, naturally as a brand like, you know, Barneys, um, you want to have a very sophisticated, a very polished uh, digital experience. So that was the first project. Yeah, I remember that still very well. And it went actually back then still on demand where um, before it was acquired by Salesforce. Uh, Barneys, uh, for the more European listeners, um, that's a luxury department store, right? Uh, that's exactly right. Yeah. And and when uh, when was the project? Was it then 2008, nine? This was a little bit later. I think 2011, 2012. Yeah, around that time frame, about 10 years ago now. Yeah. 
and uh, in their um, in their approach or their view on e-commerce was they wanted to have like a direct customer access via the, via the web. Uh, I would say. That's exactly right. And, you know, to, to be honest, they, they were really ahead of the curve as they used a lot of influencers, um, you know, as, as part of the creation process. There were dedicated, um, you know, product collection pages that were curated very explicitly by, by some of the fashion influencers. Um, there was always this, 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 this funny button that we called the Kanye West button, which is essentially putting everything in the cart and um, checking out. So they had a lot of high volume customers and there was a little bit more of a you know, hands-on curated shopping experience as well that we build out for them, like a little bit of a backroom shopping experience outside of the public okay. one. And, and and do you remember the requirements of this project? Was it like, we want to be, we want to have the um, state-of-the-art website. We really want to convince our customers with the best web experience or it should be the best looking uh, website. So focusing on just brand experience, uh, not so much technology experience. Uh, what was it back then? And as you said, you, Uh, uh, you ended up with uh, uh, with demandware uh, um, than yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah, I think on, on a really high level, you know, what I do remember, there was it was a lot about the aesthetics and it was about keeping it very, very clean, a lot of white space, a lot of black and white. And, you know, if you look at the current experience, you know, that's still very much aligned with that. So aesthetics was really important and getting that feel of luxury across. Um, the other point that I remember is really, um, you know, social features back then were already um, highly relevant and they weren't actually as commoditized yet in, in the e-commerce platform. So anything from liking things to sharing things, you know, I remember going to a lot of custom implementations to make those things actually happen. Um, and then last but not least, really having strong authoring capabilities. So for these influencers, for these curators, um, making it easy for them to, you know, pick their favorite items within the e-commerce experience and, curate them up on, on their own personal page, including some storytelling and, um, you know, reasoning why, why, why they believe in these particular products or why, why, why they like them. Yeah. Maybe we can, can, can we stick with Barney's for a minute? Because if I remember correctly, and I'm not following the US market when it comes to retail luxury uh, department stores, I think they, uh, they filed for, uh, for bankruptcy uh, two or three years ago. Um, so, and I, I can read out of this uh, bankruptcy, uh, bankruptcy uh, uh, filing that their e-commerce strategy was maybe not uh, uh, aggressive enough. Would you, would you agree? I think back, back, you know, if, if we look at 10 years ago, I think they were doing a lot of things right. Um, but to a certain extent, I think um, where they maybe missed the mark a little bit is really looking at e-commerce beyond just that dot-com property and really much more of an operating system um, that you want to have, you know, highly compatible towards all the other channels that you need to be present in, social commerce, you know, marketplace integrations, um, to a certain extent, also, also your brick and mortar. And um, I think, you know, what I see with a lot of companies that are what I call on the right side of history is uh, they um, heavily invest in loyalty. They heavily invest in, you know, direct marketing and, and you know, we're a personalized messaging and engagement model um, through the means of marketing automation. And I think that's definitely something where, where Barney's wasn't as aggressive. Um, and I think that is something that contributed towards you know, them not being as high performing as they could have been with, with, with the strong brand equity that they actually have. Could have a, could have a company like Barney's uh, um, given a much more progressive e-commerce strategy. So for them, it was just like a, a front end in, in the internet, right? The, the web strategy like 10 years ago. But, uh, and I remember that social commerce and content commerce that was kind of the, 
peak in the hype cycle uh, ten years ago. Uh, ten years ago, too. So I remember that was uh, um, that was a big thing to kind of copy uh, um, Facebook back then with this like feature. So that was social commerce like ten years ago. Yeah. But with a much more um, aggressive strategy, like becoming an online marketplace for luxury, uh, for example. Um, in the setup you have um, uh, you have seen back then, could that have been a thing that could have worked? So becoming like the my Theresa uh, uh, um, of the US um, back then, or wasn't that possible even for uh, for one of the leading luxury department stores uh, worldwide? It's a really good question. I mean, you know, to, to be fully frank with you, um, at that point, I think from a majority perspective, you know, Barney's was not ready probably to invest in much more than they actually invested in with a relatively packaged at the end of the day, you know, demand we're offering. I think, you know, if, if you look at that time, a lot of companies um, adopted solutions like Demandware because they were cloud-based, because they were you know heavily packaged, because they got you to market very, very quickly, and because they had l- relatively little technical sophistication in-house. And you know, part of that is obviously also them going out and hiring an external agency to build this for them, um, which is representative of you know that they didn't have a full stake in actually owning this wholeheartedly in-house. So, you know, I, I, I think from a business strategy perspective, definitely something that would have been very, very interesting, but from an operational readiness perspective, um, something that probably was beyond their capabilities and their majority at that particular point in time. What was uh, uh, back at the time already kind of a CIO? Uh, involved in this decision making because the CIO thing in in Europe I think peaked in uh, 2015 to 16. Then uh, I don't know McKinsey and all the others recommended you need to have a CIO for the transformation project. And now it's more like you know the CEO needs to be the CIO because it's like it's all internet. Uh, it's all uh, uh, um, internet now. So was it was it back then a discussion already or was e-commerce just a channel? I mean, in generally, I'm, I'm I'm consistently surprised how non-frequently we actually are having these conversations with a CTO or CIO, and it's primarily the CDO, the CMO, to a certain extent, the CEO driving a lot of these, you know, platform conversations, RP processes, and but then also decision making and and the technology. If there is a you know senior technology lead at all. Then typically, you know, they are they're more of an approver and maybe maybe you know somebody who's giving input in the decision making process. And and I think, you know, to your point, um, the companies that are highly successful these days, right? The Amazons, the Netflix, the Googles, the Apples, um, are, are are heavily technology led. And you know, you have CEOs that that are very very technical affine. And um, I am continuously surprised if you look at boards of really big organizations in Fortune 100, um, how underrepresented CIOs and CTOs are. And I yeah. think there's something there, a gap. Yeah. And, and that's, maybe let's stick with this topic for, for, for a minute. We know, we've yeah. learned it, it never it did not work out for Barneys. It's too late. But may, maybe we have like a, a decent learning here from this case because there are new Barneys all around. Like it's not luxury department stores, but there's like yeah. retailers with an outdated business model was so exactly the same board structure or an advisory board structure uh, uh, you have, uh, you have descri- uh, you've been describing. And then I'm usually uh, trying to compare it uh, with the time when I was active at the Otto Group and I uh, started there 2005. And I remember most likely um, if you have an agenda of 10 uh, topics in the board agenda, nine of those 10 topics in 2005 were kind of offline topics like let's create a new logo yeah. let's uh, go to market in france yeah. and then uh, the only software topic was yeah we have to um, upgrade the edv system <laughs> in uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, somehow 
And today, uh, every modern retailer, I would say, if you look into a, a board meeting, um, nine out of 10 topics are software-related topics. It's uh, upgrading the PIM, um, hiring, uh, let's let's set up uh, a near-shoring structure in whatever country we're going to dive into the topic a little bit later. Um, so, um, it, it, so, and if, if nine of 10 topics uh, on the top level are software topics, so most naturally it makes sense to have like people with some software knowledge uh, uh, in there. But that is not the case. And, uh, um, and now we cannot come back out of this podcast and say, uh, you 80 companies out of the Fortune 100 that uh, did not manage to um, update your, your board uh, fast enough, you're going to die. So what can we recommend or what can you Uh, recommend based on your experience? Yeah, so, so I think in general, you know, I, I don't think the bar is for CEOs to start, you know, learning software development and, and how, how to code in Python or, or in Java. But I do think um, that particularly as it relates to topics like platform strategy and, you know, understanding concepts like what is a headless strategy for me and Abel versus, you know, more traditional head-on strategy. Um, what does it mean to be a best-in-class customer in the SaaS world versus a, a, a full suite customer end-to-end. -end. I think those are really, really important topics to be invested in and, and, and to have an opinion on and to really consult with your CIO and CTO. And to a certain extent, you know, to, to, to spin that further around the, the missing board representation, I'm also surprised how often your CIOs or CTOs report to people like CFOs or COOs which obviously always are kind of measured by operational efficiency or financial efficiency versus, you know, a much more uh, strategic outlook and, you know, making an assessment around, hey, we actually have to do a more significant replatforming here. And it's going to take us two years before we're going to um, reap the benefits, but it's going to set us up for the right future. That's actually a very hard conversation to have with a CEO or CFO or to sell that in versus a chief strategy officer or a CEO. So I think just short wiring the, the conversations between the CTO or the CAO with the CEO, I think is extremely important, but then also vice versa, really making sure that CEOs um, have the right education, they get the right you know, exposure, they, they have the right thought leaders around them who are make more technology led if that's not uh, particularly in their DNA. So, so, so it's a bi-directional, I think, you know, um, yeah. progression that needs to happen. May I challenge this a little bit? Because yeah. <laughs> what I see, so I would say out of these, let's let's take the Fortune 100 companies. Uh, many many CEOs obviously have been to a lot of um, digital summits or whatever to, uh, to 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 know the word headless or to get an understanding. But there, then then we have like a yeah, let's say a dilemma in our industry. So uh, if you just if you're not in those topics, if you're not doing a project implementation. You obviously fall for all the marketing tricks of this industry because uh, uh, let's go to the uh, e-commerce e platforms. Like uh, So there are some of the newer ones like Spryker uh, um, I'm running that are like born in this headless environment. So uh, uh, um, And the pitch of headless is usually uh, time to market and total cost of ownership, right? So you can really innovate and you're faster to market. If, if I would now uh, um, uh, delete all logos from our competitor websites, SAP, uh, Salesforce, uh, VTEX, uh, whatever, and only show you as a CEO um, the main um, arguments they are pitching with, you would never 
never see a difference between us and an SAP. Even SAP is pitching with total cost of ownership and time to market, uh, which is which is obviously a big lie. But that can only be understood by people that have been in those projects. So, and then therefore, I would argue that. Yes, the CEO must understand what like a new platform selection means for him. But it's so hard to get to a level where your part in the discussion becomes really valuable that I would argue that it's not it's not easy to achieve. Uh, uh, maybe maybe he has to start with coding Python uh, to get to this level. I mean, I, I think what I'm going to say to that, I think, you know, if there's any um, development chance for even like, you know, very senior technology leaders that I've met, it's kind of building more of our uh, data acumen and, and data-driven approach, in particular also financial fluency towards the decisions that they're making. And with that, you know, building trust and talking a language that the CEO understands that if we make this investment in Spreaker, you know, long-term, this is what we think like we're going to benefit from, right? And kind of translating time to market, translating the flexibility about, you know, being able to integrate with all these platforms into a language that the CEO understands. I think very often that is not yet happening. And that's mm -hmm. why for the CEO, it becomes very executional and say, okay, I, I trust your decision or I don't trust your decision. But at the end of the day, I just know something's going to change in the platform environment but I don't really understand what that means in my language. And I don't really understand how that's, you know, going to be relevant to what's, what's I'm going to get measured against, you know, from, from, from my investors, from my stakeholders. Um, and I think what worked very well for me is, you know, to, to take these decisions and these very strategic components and recommendations and try to translate them into something from a financial model perspective, from a business model perspective, from a, you know, just, just, just pure KPI driven perspective that actually resonates with the CEO. And I feel like then you also pique their interest and they want to learn more. And why is it so much more efficient to potentially, you know, use a Spryker versus an SAP? What is behind that? And then, then you're having a conversation um, that is maybe a little more meaningful versus just, you know, a strategic platform A versus platform B conversation. Okay, let's assume there are enough uh, CEOs or uh, managing directors out there that are able to, um, yeah, to uh, to run through this learning curve. Um, yeah. Do you see like a standard set of mistakes made when people are rushing into digitalization because um, COVID kind of pushed many companies uh, uh, now uh, now to the edge and now they understand it and now they need to rush now they say okay, we have kind of missed uh, investment opportunities the last 10 years now we have to uh, now we have to uh, catch up within the next 12 to 24 months do you see patterns that need to be avoided uh, uh, in this in this rush yeah i think there's there's a few learnings and kind of both beyond the you know last 12 months um the one thing is i think a lot of companies on the client side and this is obviously a little bit of, of my agency background speaking are underinvested in, in digital operations and setting up really strong digital PMO um, as, as well as, you know, project management structures to run these digital initiatives, which are somewhat complex, right? It is software development. It's unpredictable. You want to have a good framework around it. Um, and, and, and you want people who hold the both the technology team responsible, but also can really um, work with all the different touch points that you have to other vendors, to your internal business partners, all of those dependencies that typically exist within a digital project. So, so I think that's one mistake. Um, to kind of take this approach around, oh, this 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 project is going to serve itself, versus being very adamant about setting up a really good PMO structure against it, um, you know, based obviously on the KPIs, on the objectives, on, on on the milestones that you have set out. I think the other thing is for me uh, really focus, um, you know, 
you, we, we talked about this a little bit in the past, but you know, there's there, there's there's some organizations out there that you look at and they have five thousand engineers, and you know, they're, they're not a technology-led uh, organization. And, and, and if you question yourself, why is that engineering team so big? And then when when you start looking inside, you start noticing that they're trying to do everything from running their own cloud operations to you know running their 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 own um, you know financial tools. And for me, a lot of companies underestimate, particularly in, in this world of scarce technology talent and, you know, the swarm of talent for the best engineers out there is how important it is to set a really clear focus and how to be very, very clear around where we're going to differentiate with our own technology implementations. And then this typically drives a good conversation. Where do you buy versus where do you build? So coming back to your question, it's a lot about just focusing on the things that matter. Um, for you and for you going, actually going to differentiate in your market and then rely on external partners for more of the commoditized things where you think, you know, being being average is good enough for me. So so I think that's a piece. And that also comes back to it's trying to do too much at one time, um, especially if you're new to this world, if you're just building out your own engineering team, if this is maybe the second, third, fourth um, own technical implementation that you're doing is, um, you know, try to be very iterative. Don't try to do five things at the same time, but focus on, you know, let it be getting your personal station up and running, and then you move on to loyalty or focusing on, um, you know, getting more 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 storytelling into your e-commerce experience, and, and take more of a sequential approach versus trying to do everything at once and nothing getting delivered at you know high quality at the end of the day. I wrote an article last year for my blog Kassenzone, it's a German uh, it's a German blog um, where I try to figure out how many engineers uh, um, are working at Amazon, Zalando, about you yeah. and other digital players and. Um, it's very, it's actually very easy uh, formula that comes up. You can uh, you can divide the number of, uh, you can take the revenue uh, uh, and divide uh, this within through the number of engineers, and you end up with two to four million. Um, so every engineer or every like um, full time employee in the IT department, including QA, product managers, project managers, is responsible for two to four million of the GMV. And, and this is uh, interesting because uh, um, it, it's not scaling the way the standard um, head of IT from 20 years ago in German, the EDV-Leiter, uh, would, would scale it. So he would expect like a better performance or more revenue per engineer over time. It's kind of a, yep. very, it's kind of a very stable, uh, it's kind of a very stable um, situation there. And, uh, um, and we are seeing companies now with, uh, let's say, um, 50 billion in revenue, Uh, 5 billion uh, e-commerce already and 1,000 engineers. And 1,000 engineers were for them like a big team, but this was a team also responsible for printers, network cable, uh, yeah. uh, point of uh, point of sale, checkout, uh, whatever. And now if, if you're looking at this uh, uh, this quota, two to four million, you would say, okay, with 5 million revenue, actually you should have been at 2,500 engineers already or 2,500 people. Your goal is to get to 10 billion in two years That's 5,000 people. Then the question comes up, okay, uh, often they are located in, in, in areas where it's very hard to find engineers. Where yep. the hell should they get so many high-qualified people that fast? Do you have an answer for that? Yeah, I mean, to, to a certain extent, I'll probably challenge the um, aspect a little bit that you have to linearly scale with, with, with the volume of business. And, and, and I absolutely believe, you know, that there's a historical background to it, but you know, the way that, that I look at modern engineering teams is where you keep senior technology talent, architects, technical leads, you know, strong QA leads, strong product managers, very, very close to the business in the headquarters. Um, but then you somewhat keep, or, you know, ideally relatively flexible 
engineering workforce at scale. That can be through partners, that can be through you know engineering hubs, that can be um, essentially through contractors as well. Um, that you then deliver individual products, individual projects, um, you know, at, at at that flexible scale. Because I think we we've all learned or we've all seen an organization that your engineering workload is not necessarily constant. Sometimes it's go up um, with, you know, key initiatives. Sometimes it's, it's a little more down when you're trying to measure and learn and, you know, trying to plan for, for the next thing. But I think as, as it relates to scale, I don't think, you know, any company that wants to be successful in, in technology today um, can be without um, an efficient nearshore or um, offshore strategy. In, in, in their staffing. And, you know, I'm continuously surprised how talented, how qualified people are, um, you know, in, in, in East Europe and in, in South America, in, 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 in Asia, um, the talent that, that you can attract and, and really also the, the, um, the investment that these people take in, into their job and the pride that they take into, you know, working for you, even, even from an offshore location um, is just absolutely fantastic. So building senior teams, Onshore, you know, where where you know you're you're, you're getting what what you're paying for, and then having the scale and hopefully a distributed setup as well, um, that gives you like a follow the sun model for IT operations, et cetera, with you know strong engineering hubs is I think something that every modern organization needs needs to be part of today. Mm. From a European perspective, nearshoring locations are usually uh, Romania, Poland, uh, Ukraine. You've been working or you are working for a lot of US-based company. What is nearshoring for them? Is it, is it then Mexico or is it South America? So interesting enough, a lot of US clients that I work with right now are using uh, talent in, in, in Russia, in Romania, and in, in, in Belarus. But um, you know what? What I've learned in my career, I've worked a lot with South America, particularly Colombia and Argentina, and um, that talent I think is very, very strong as it relates to creative engineering, front-end development, you know, agile product development. Um, so anything that, that that requires, you know, somebody to have a good aesthetic understanding of what a front-end design should look like, you know, pixel perfection. Um, that's where where we had a lot of success with these locations, and Mexico definitely um, is is trending very high as well. I would say that's where you now end up more in back end development work, similar to India, similar to maybe some of the talent that that you find also in in Russia. I feel like there's the computational foundations are a little bit more towards let's build highly scalable systems, and that's typically where we lean on on those locations. While as South America has been really really good for us for this sort of creative engineering, and there's just a culture that comes with these teams um, that kind of further fosters that. But but would you say like for uh, bigger um, US corporates, there's enough um, HR potential, especially for IT hiring uh, in in those in those countries? Because now in Europe, you see a rush like. Especially due to COVID, uh, companies learned that um, um, nearshoring really works because uh, any anyway everybody was like working from home, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, uh, didn't matter if they're working from uh, uh, Munich or, or or from Prague, uh, uh, um, and uh, and and this leads leads to a situation where when now a big company like Siemens is heading into Prague or uh, even to yeah. Kiev. They, 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 it's like they, they, they will absorb everybody available in this market, and and I assume that's going to be the same. And the US is even way bigger. So, uh, uh, and even in Sao Paulo, if you go, if you go there, there might be now 1,000 people available, uh, but it's not that they are producing like 1,000 additional people per month uh, based on their educational system. So, how, how does it how does it go? Is it is it already a very tight market, big competition, or is it um, still in development? 
No, it, it, it's definitely getting very, very competitive, you know, particular locations like like Bogota or Medellin in Colombia or Buenos Aires. Um, you know, you I, I would go to, to the offices and literally see how the key competitor is opening shop next door. And, you know, by by raising the salary of 10, 15, 20 percent, typically, mm. you know, uh, you, you can have an impact and, and, and you can attract talent. And obviously that then ends up in, in a cycle where you know it's not as cost affordable anymore than, than than it used to be. I think the trend that I'm seeing though is particularly what you mentioned with you know um, working from remote that um, you now have yet more access towards the more you know let's just call them um, the IT deserts um, where where people are not part to a big hub and they enjoy living maybe not in the big city but in the small city and you know now you have access to to these people more easily because there's no difference anymore if you're in a big city or not because nobody's going to an office. Um, I, I think that's part of it. The other thing that I think is very, very interesting, and I strongly believe in that I think over the next five to 10 years, even further, individuals are going to be more associated with individual project work than they are to a company. And, mm. you know, we have platforms in the US like Upwork, like TopTel, um, that provide to you engineering talent very much on a project basis. And yes, you build relationships with them. And yes, you know, you, you build your vetted pool of freelancers that you bring in for projects um, more, more frequently. But at the end of the day, you know, you have very loose agreements with them. You know, they work for you week by week. Um, but it's been an incredibly effective model to, to find uh, quickly high quality talent and to yet keep the agility of being able to scale up and down um, as, as you need to. So I think this, this more talent platform approach to, to sourcing some of your engineering needs is, is definitely rising in popularity. What's your answer to CIOs and CEOs that would argue, um, Thomas, we cannot compete with uh, uh, Amazon or Zalando, they are technology companies, and you're advising us to invest into tech. That That's not uh, where we are. We, we are coming from uh, having the best assortment, the best shopping experience. Uh, we would like to stay there. So we we, we can never be, uh, we will never be able to compete with, with Amazon. What, what do you say to them? You know, I, I don't think every organization has to be an Amazon. It has to be a Google and has to be, you know, 100% technology-led. But, I, you know, it comes back for me to the point around, I do think you want to have a very clear strategy around where, from a technology perspective, will you differentiate and where do you want to build something custom? You know, to give you an example, I worked with Hulu in the past. And I think it, it was fascinating to learn that they had a 500 engineering team in Shanghai that did nothing else than work on the recommendation engine. Because the recommendation engine is kind of the most differentiated mm. value proposition that they have that's going to create stickiness. And then yeah. other things like video delivery that you would think, oh, my God, that's so important to you. That was completely outsourced, right? Be because it's much more commoditized than, you know, there's, there, there's only so much you can do about your compression factors and, you know, your, your CDN enablement. And I think that's exactly the right strategy, right? You have to decide on where you bespoke, where are you hitting the mark with your customers and, and where do you externalize. And then that doesn't, that typically doesn't mean that you have to have a thousand people team, but you maybe have an 80 people engineering team that does very meaningful work. Um, so, so I think it's coming up with that right build versus buy strategy that's getting increasingly important, especially as there's so many SaaS tools out there and, you know, there's, there's so many great um, solution providers, particularly in marketing technology that can, you know, do so much for you um, without you ever having to write a single line of code. Um, so yeah, not everybody has to be an Amazon, but I do think you have to be very, very clear and very crisp around where will you differentiate as a technology and an IT team and, and where you find again with, you know, being, being average and, um, every CEO should, should understand that. And that's really where the investment has to go. 
You've worked uh, in many prominent roles for big brands or big companies. So um, obviously many software companies pitch to you and say, buy me, I will help you betting, getting a better conversion, much faster search, whatever. So uh, if you could choose today to start your own software company, um, apart obviously from uh, from commerce tech, the best soft, uh, companies already founded with Spryker. So, but what, what company would it be uh, if you could choose again today? Yeah, you know, honestly, I, I think that the one thing that I feel like is still very immature is general just digital attribution, particularly, you know, in a world, <clears throat> sorry, where, where channels are more proliferating, where people are not just selling on their own.com, but on, you know, marketplaces like Amazon or, or social, and, and really kind of looking at, you know, what are actually our effective channels, what advertising is working for us, um, you know, what kind of content is resonating with our people, both, both on domain as well as off domain. Um, so, so I feel very passionate about end-to-end -end attribution, particularly tying that into kind of the new world of customer data platforms, um, where you get much more, you know, sophisticated around collecting all of the different, you know, customer data fragments that you have in your organization, putting them together in, in, in one place, and then really um, driving very meaningful engagements and orchestration with that. And, you know, if, if you look at the role of kind of marketers in a lot of organizations right now and the decisions that they have to make on a day around when do I send what email at what, you know, stage in, in, in the consumer lifecycle process to who, um, how do I interact with them through, through text messages or advertising, putting a lens of machine learning and artificial intelligence on that. So that I know that you, Alex, open your emails always at 7.30 a.m. in the morning. And that's where I have your attention span. So you're going to get an email at 7.30. But I might be looking at my inbox primarily after 5 p.m. when I'm done with all my meetings. So I'm going to get that email at 5 p.m. You can imagine that if you look at our, you know, 200, 300 million customers, that doesn't scale in a human manner. So you need machine learning. You need artificial intelligence. You need, you know, very good data quality. Um, to become much more bespoke and one-to-one -one, um, within your within your consumer engagement. And I'm still surprised how many companies are just blasting out these newsletters on a Monday at 8 p.m. Um, yeah. And, you know, without any personalization to it. So I think there's a big opportunity there. I, I agree. I agree. But maybe we can look a little bit deeper into that. And that was going to be the last question for, for our podcast here today. So um, it's not new. It's like 10 years ago, even when like uh, even when uh, even when the luxury where uh, department stores thought about like social commerce, this thing of like personalized emails was around even even individualized storefronts where you would only see your sizes, your brands, uh, uh, your price ranges on a store. And it never happened. There's like there's not especially on the desktop side, there's not one e-commerce experience uh even like in the bigger stores like zalando focusing only on fashion where i would see only stuff for men in my size my colors my, my it's even if my if, I, if i'm locked in it's, it's not happening so even the simplest use cases and you've described even a complex one with sending the email at the right time uh even the simplest use cases are not implemented uh, uh um And that that doesn't give me any hope that the more complex one will be solved uh, in, in in the future. Why why is that? What's your opinion on that? No, you're, you're absolutely you're, you're preaching to the choir. You know, I am amazed that I don't think I know a single website that starts personalizing the header or the navigational patterns in the moment where they have key information about you, yeah. gender, you know, yeah. preferences. I mean, it, it's technically it's very very simple, right? Yes. Um, but um, I think the frameworks that we have in place, and, and it's also the, the, the thinking that people have is somewhat, um, you know, so much in a box 
for that is, you know, from an SEO perspective, from information architecture perspective, it seems like that is an absolutely end of pattern, but it would make absolute sense. Um, I, I do think, you know, why doesn't it happen? Personalization um, very quickly comes with a lot of effort, right, to scale. Like when, when you start thinking, okay, I'm going to have five personas and I'm going to have 10 messages. Now you already have, have 50 different permutations that you have to build content for. And that's really expensive. But I do think with, you know, if, if you look at the sophistication that we have in natural language generation, if you look at, you know, a lot of the vision-based AI tools that are coming out that, that allow you to do a lot of great things around compiling media material on the fly, there are new opportunities here to, you know, deal with that scale in a more automated manner than we maybe had available five, 10 years ago. So, so I haven't given up hope, but I do think there's so many quick wins in that space that if you take a more, you know, kind of out of the box thinking to it, um, you, you can start activating it. Yeah. So my summary is e even though e-commerce is around now, like for 20 years, and we've been preaching like the same things for at least 10 to 12 years uh, now, there it seems that there's going to be a lot of work for us uh, to be done in the next 20, <laughs> 20 years. So we're not got, we're not running out of work <laughs> in our line here uh, uh, in in updating um, the e-commerce experience. Tom, thank you for uh, for your time, and hope to speak to you soon. Thanks so much, Alex. Big pleasure. And yes, um, always excited to, to reconnect again. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please don't forget to rate this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever channel you kind of use to listen to podcasts. See you next time. Okay.